Please turn with me in the preserved words of God to Psalm 143 before we go to Habakkuk chapter 3. Psalm 143. And let me show you what Habakkuk, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will give us in that third chapter and how we can use it the rest of our lives to stir ourselves up and encourage ourselves in the Lord when our circumstances are bleak. Chapter 3 is a prayer and a song in Habakkuk. I read in Psalm 143, verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness, as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Selah. Verse 5 is what I want you to remember. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. You know what the word remember means. It means to recall and bring again into your mind some things to think about. I remember what God has done in days of old. I meditate. That means to have reflective and contemplative thoughts about something God has done to encourage your heart that since He has delivered others in the past, He will deliver you in the present and the future. Then it says, I muse on the work of thy hands. To muse is to ponder and to consider something. You know where I'm going because I get angry about the world we live in. Our nation is addicted to amusement. When you put the prefix ah in front of a word, it means the opposite of what the word means. A theist is someone that believes in God. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. To muse is a verb meaning to ponder and to consider the things God has done. To be amused is to do no thinking. And that is our generation through television and movie and what are those parks called with all those rides? What are they called? Amusement. Amusement parks. Where you can go and there's a bunch of noise and a lot of activity, but no thinking. Do you remember what I gave to you about our Continental Congress and the day of Thanksgiving in the days of George Washington? They asked the nation that there would be no amusement on the day of Thanksgiving. Right. Today it's Nowadays, it's Turkey Day and Football Day. A bunch of amusement. The Lord wants us to muse. Because it's through musing, pondering, considering, remembering, meditating, reflecting, and contemplating what God has done before that will stir you up, that He will be with you, and you can face anything. That's what Habakkuk 3 is all about. Let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 3 and finish our study of this minor prophet. Habakkuk chapter 3. Chapter 1. Habakkuk complained to God about the wickedness of Judah. God said, don't worry about it. I'm about to pound them by Babylon. Habakkuk said, is it, is it right for you to use such a wicked nation to pound your people, to chasten them, to correct them. Is it right? Chapter 2. It is right. And I want you to make the vision plain so that those who read it can run. The just shall survive it and live by faith. And here's what I'll do to Babylon and why I'm going to do it. Because they are wicked by these five woes. And chapter 2 ended 
The Lord is in His holy temple. What He's doing to Judah is right and good. What He's doing to Babylon is right and good. I no longer have anything to say. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. God is perfect and just in everything He does. Chapter 3. Let's rejoice and celebrate. Though there is a reminder in the chapter that the coming judgment by Babylon is going to be terribly severe and very painful, let's remember what God has done for Israel and Judah in times past. And let's trust that He'll do it in the future. And we get to the climax of the whole, epist- of the whole prophet. And he says, I don't care if there's total economic waste caused by the Chaldean armies, that there's a great famine. The Lord is my joy and my strength, and I'm going to rejoice in whatever happens. My trust is in the Lord. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3. In verses 1 and 2, he will introduce his prayer and his song. In verses 3 through 15, he will recount God's blessing upon Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and through the wilderness to Canaan. In verses 16 through 19, he will admit that the prospect of the Babylonians coming was fearful, but he wasn't worried about it because the Lord would take care of him. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianoth. Now, you haven't used Shigianoth in a sentence this past week. But our King James translators gave us Shigianoth. And if you go to the last sentence of this chapter, you know that it was to be written as a song. And if you go look at the Psalms and look at their superscripts, you will find out about Shigianoth and Neganoth being some form of singing or some type of an instrument or some place where singing was to occur. So it's a musical introduction to the third chapter, and it's a musical conclusion, and you can find that by going to the Psalms. A prayer of a, some of Dave, was Psalm 143 a prayer? Was it also a Psalm? Okay, so we, that's okay? Is it okay to be both? Habakkuk chapter 3 is both. It's a prayer, and it's a song. It's to be played and sung. Because it's to, it's to stir up all those Jews. Look what God did for us in the past. He'll do it for us in the future. And this is what you should all prepare your hearts and souls for. Every one of you young people, pain is coming in your life. You don't know it yet. Do you know why? Because your mom and dad take all the pain. You're on vacation every day of your life. They feed you three times. Well, no, not anymore. It's about eight times a day. They feed you all the time. They take care of you. They provide things for you. You don't even know what a worry is except... What am I going to play for the next five minutes? But trouble's coming. And I, this is what the book of Habakkuk's for. We want to prepare. He'll deliver us. He'll take care of us. Can we be cheerful when the curtain of death comes toward us? Can we all be cheerful together? Will you help me be cheerful? I'll help you be cheerful. We'll trust in the Lord our strength. He'll be the joy of our lives. Right through the curtain of death. If something happens to a member of your family, if something happens to your spouse, if something happens to your health, if something happens to your wealth, are we going to still trust in the Lord? Amen. That's why we have this in the Bible. Verse 2, O Lord, this is the beginning of his prayer, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. That's the speech of verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. He wouldn't be afraid of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is what God's going to do to Babylon. That's not what caused him any fear. His fear was what God was going to do to Judah in verses 5 through 11. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. What a prayer. When the Lord is chastening you, These are the words to pray. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. I deserve your wrath. Our nation deserves your wrath. But while you're pouring your wrath out upon the nation, remember some mercy. Remember mercy to spare us. Revive thy work in the midst of the days. Do not let your church be overthrown. 
The church being Judah. Do not let Judah be overthrown. Revive it. Seventy years is a long time, Lord. If the Babylonians take them captive for 70 years, you're going to need to give them strength and hope and encouragement. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. Yes, you've got to chasten your work. You've got to beat it down. You've got to level Jerusalem. But revive thy work in the midst of the years. And did he? Were there some souls in Babylon that couldn't wait? Was there a Daniel? Was there a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Were some of them revived? Was there a Nehemiah and an Ezra? Was there a Zerubbabel? Yes, there were. This is what the prayer is. Lord, I was afraid to hear of what You're going to do to this nation. But in the midst of those long years, revive us. Revive Thy work. In the midst of the years, make known. Reveal Yourself to Your people in the middle of that trouble. And don't have we ever experienced that? When pain has come into your life, hasn't it drawn you closer to the Lord? Isn't that terrible that He's got to hurt us to get our attention? And He doesn't hurt us to destroy us. He hurts us to help us. Sometimes I have had to tell the Lord about grievous things that that hurt me in my life. If this is what it takes to get me close to you and on my knees more, then bring it on. But in wrath, remember mercy. Make known. Isn't that a great prayer? In the midst of the years, make yourself known to those people that are going to be far away in that foreign land of Babylon. And so he opens up his prayer. And then we have from verses 3 through 15, one glorious prophetic description. By prophetic, I mean written in prophet's language to give us beautiful word pictures of the great God of heaven delivering His brickmakers out of Egypt. Right. Now, how do we know that? Because the Bible will always give you hints to interpret it if you'll read it closely. If you were to read verse 3 and you knew your Bible, you would know that that is quoting from someone else named Moses. And from other places in the Bible describing God at Mount Sinai. Because that's where Teman and Perrin are. If you were to read ahead and look at verse 11, what event do you think is being described in verse 11? Is that deep? Do you need to go to seminary to figure out 3.11 of Habakkuk? Or Joshua's long day? Right there in verse 11. Okay, if we're starting with Moses at Sinai, and we've got Joshua and the long day in the midst, I know what this is talking about. Oh, this is like the Psalms. This is like David and all of his references to what God did bringing Israel out of Egypt. He's trying to encourage these Jews that as the Lord was with them, that generation that came out of Egypt, he would be with this generation that would be captive in Babylon for a while. That's Habakkuk 3. I'm not making light of God's Word. I just want you to understand it. If we leave this book and you don't understand each chapter, I've failed. That's it. See, Habakkuk is going to remember, meditate, and muse on what God did for that generation. Let's look at it quickly. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. When the Bible says God came, He didn't move. He didn't buy a ticket. It just means He revealed Himself. And displayed Himself because God is everywhere at all times. God is omnipresent so He doesn't come, but He does come in the fact that He may reveal Himself and expose Himself and do things for His people. And He came down on Mount Sinai. Not that He wasn't already there, but He gave His presence, a visible presence on Mount Sinai. What did it look like? It looked like a consuming fire on the bottom the top of the mountain, it said the whole mountain looked like a furnace. Have you ever seen a furnace? How, how fast is the, is the heat, smoke, and cinders coming out of the top of a furnace? Are they blowing up into the sky with a glorious display of fiery power? That was Mount Sinai. God came. Selah. That sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? What's that doing in Habakkuk chapter 3? I thought only David was supposed to use Selah. There's three of them here. And they're to make you stop and think 
about what's being said. He gets one sentence into his description of God's great deliverance of Israel, and he stops with a selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. It was a magnificent display of the God of heaven. Hold your hand here at Habakkuk, and let me prove to you that this is Mount Sinai. There's numerous verses, and they're in the outline, but let's go to Deuteronomy 33 and see one of the evidences. Deuteronomy 33, there's ten more for you to look at in the outline. If you want to see that Teman and Paran are areas of the Sinai Peninsula and the surrounding territory where Mount Sinai was located. But let's go and see some language that tells us when this occurred. Deuteronomy Verse 33 and verse 2. This is Moses blessing the children of Israel before he died. He said, Deuteronomy 33, 2, The Lord came from Sinai. See, the Lord's moving. The Lord's exposing Himself, displaying Himself. The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand, went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. And it goes on to describe what God did at Mount Sinai. Back to Habakkuk 3. There is the same language. God, Seir. What is Mount Seir? What is the country of Seir? It's Edomites. It's Edom. It's the land bordering on the Sinai Peninsula, including where Mount Sinai was. So this is starting with that great event where God came down and loved His people and entered into a covenant with them. If you will obey Me, I will make you the greatest nation on earth. I will give you the land of Canaan, and I will bless you and bless you and bless you. If you disobey, I will destroy you from the earth. But it was a wonderful covenant that God made with His people, and that is what Habakkuk is raising, a work of old, for them to remember, for them to meditate about, for them to muse on, so that they would have the confidence. If God delivered our fathers in Egypt, they didn't have an army. They didn't even have arms. They were brick makers. They weren't even allowed to have straw. He can deliver us, even if it is the mighty Babylonians. Oh, there's so many more references. We could turn to page after page that tell you. See, you this is the best commentary in the Bible, right here. Amen. This is the best commentary in the Bible. It tells us to use this method in 1 Corinthians 2.13, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You say, I don't know what the word parent means. Then look it up in this commentary. I don't know what the word teman means. Then look it up in this commentary. Those are mountains and cities in the land of Edom next to Mount Sinai. So we're just getting warmed up with Habakkuk remembering the works of old. And he starts with Mount Sinai and God coming down that mountain. And that's why we had read to us Exodus chapter 19. Verse 4, And His brightness was as the light. How bright was it? How bright was it? What happened to Moses? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, what did he have to do? He had to put a veil over his face because you couldn't look at Moses. His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. What part of God's anatomy, and he doesn't have a body, it's to help us understand, what part of his anatomy comes to deliver someone? What part of an anatomy of a sailor reaches over the side of a ship to save a drowning man? Hands. And which arm? Forget all you lefties. The right arm. Because the majority of people are right-armed. So it is the right arm of the Most High God and His hand that delivers men. In His hand, there were horns. And what are horns in the Bible? Emblems of glory and power. And there was the hiding of His power. All He did was show a little bit on Mount Sinai. Do you think Mount Sinai shaken was all He could do? It was only a little bit. 
there was the hiding of His power. He only displayed a little bit. Does God dwell in a light that no man can approach unto? All we can see is a glimpse. When God revealed Himself to Moses, He showed him His hinder parts. Because no man could see His full glory and survive. That's what the verse is describing. When God came down on Mount Sinai, He was so bright and light, Moses had to cover his face to be able to walk among the people of Israel. And there was in his hands horns representing power, and they were not fully exposed. He was just showing some of his power. Verse 5, Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. The mountain was on fire. Pestilence went before them as they marched toward Canaan. There were nations falling over dead from diseases that the Lord sent among them. How do we know the Lord uses diseases? Look at look through the book of Exodus, Numbers, and see the number of times He used pestilence on His own people when they sinned against Him. The pestilence went before Him, burning coals from His feet because He came down on top of the mountain with the bottom part of the image He gave Moses to see, and the mountain was altogether on a fire. Habakkuk, like a psalmist, is describing these glorious displays of God's power in order to encourage the Jews, even if Babylon takes us captive, wait till our God is through using them and He unloads on Babylon. These people were the same ones. The, the, the ones that Habakkuk is talking about were the ones in Egypt that were sighing by reason of their bondage and their sigh came up into heaven. And God heard it. And God came down and delivered them. And in Babylon, if they were to sigh, there was deliverance coming as well. Are you with me on what Habakkuk 3 is all about? We can speed through these verses. He stood. The Lord stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. God had an eternal decree on what was going to happen in the land of Canaan. Those people had dug the wells, built the cities, and planted the vineyards for His people to use. He stood and measured the earth and gave it to His people Israel. I have to give you one good reference on this. Back to Deuteronomy. Of course we would go back to Deuteronomy because Habakkuk is talking about the days of Moses. Deuteronomy 32. Brethren, I've got 10 to 20 cross-references for every one of these references showing how the Bible interprets itself, but all I, I just want to hit the highlights. But here's a verse you want about He stood and measured the earth. Notice, when God is the surveyor, it's a wonderful thing. Do you know what He says in Malachi chapter 1 when He's doing the surveying? Take a look at the border of Israel. He said, The Lord be magnified from the border of Israel because Israel was next to Edom, the country of Esau. And he said, just look at that border and see if there isn't a difference. And there are differences between nations in this earth, and they are not something to be ignored. Those differences exist because God made a difference between nations. And we should not be ashamed of it. And I don't care if it's not politically correct to talk about it. It's spiritually correct to talk about it because we should thank God for the difference He's made in our nation. It's not because we're better. It's because he was kinder by his, for his good pleasure and the praise of his grace. Deuteronomy chapter 32, look at verse 8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. This is when the Lord stood and measured the earth He divided it and gave it to men according to the boundaries He had established for Israel. And if there was somebody in the way, He threw them out. Back to Habakkuk chapter 3. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. There were people that had had the gall to dig wells and plants and establish cities and plant vineyards on the Lord's property. And He drove them asunder so that Israel could come in and drink from the wells, occupy the cities, 
and eat the grapes and drink the wine from the vineyards. They did not have to do those things. If you were paying careful attention to the reading from Joshua 11, they burnt the queen city. They burnt the chief city, but they did not burn the rest of the cities because God had let those other people build those cities for His people. The, perpet- the everlasting mountains and the perpetual hills. That is describing city-states. That is disca- describing political economies as lasting forever. You know, there were nations that had been there for hundreds of years. Blown right out of the picture. By the everlasting God who had had a purpose for this land from the very beginning. For His people Israel. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan, Ethiopia, in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The Ethiopians were the southern neighbors of Egypt and were often confederate with Egypt. When Israel destroyed the land of Egypt, guess who was quaking in their boots that that nation would take a southerly march? The tents of Cushan. Cush, the son of Ham, the father of the Ethiopians. Go read it in Genesis chapter 10. How about the curtains of Midia? Remember the Israelites passed by the Midianites. Remember where Moses found Mount Sinai? He was working for his father-in-law who lived in the land of Midian. And so those two nations were on the way as Israel went toward Canaan and they were petrified. If this nation destroyed Egypt like we're hearing about, what's going to happen to us? So we have that in verse 7. Shouldn't that comfort a Jew who was about to be taken captive by the Babylonians? The nations of the earth have trembled before our people in times past because the Lord was with them. Verse 8. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thy horses and thy chariots of salvation? Lord, it looked like you were real angry at the Red Sea because you just pulled it apart and left a dry road right through the middle of it. This is just like Psalm 114 that asked, Why did the mountains skip? Why did the water run away? What ailed thee, O sea, that thou fled away? This is, this is poetry. This is a psalm, a song. We're to understand this is describing the Red Sea at the beginning of the 40 years in the wilderness and the Jordan River at the end of the 40 years. God stacked up the Jordan River in the time of flooding. He stacked up the the, the side that was flowing down and the rest just ran away and they went through on dry ground. They did that with the Red Sea. That's what this verse is describing. Lord, were you displeased against the rivers? Were you angry? Of course He wasn't angry. He was delivering His people. You know what the chapter is for. It's to encourage them. God would move anything that was in the way of His people. If you ever think you are in a situation that you cannot get out of, you have lost your faith. The Israelites were at the edge of the Red Sea. They had come out of the land of Egypt, and there they were. As far as they looked to the left, Red Sea. As far as they looked to the right, Red Sea. As far as they looked across the horizon, Red Sea. What's behind them? Pharaoh's army. And he's upset. He's been reduced to a pauper nation and his firstborn is lying in state back in the capital. They thought it was hopeless. You are going to have times in your life where you think it is hopeless. Are you going to remember thy works of old and meditate in the works of thy hands and muse on God's work? He is able to deliver you. Amen. He said, Moses, raise your rod over that, ocean, over that Red Sea. And you know what happened. You know, you know all about And opening that up, was God angry with the sea? No, it just looked like He was. He was delivering His people by opening it up. God can open up the Red Sea in front of you and help you out of the most complicated, difficult problems you can ever get yourself into. Do you believe that? That's what Habakkuk 3 is for. He's going to believe it when he gets to the end. He's going to give us a testimony that he believes everything he wrote. That although the fig tree, and you know how it goes, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He'll deliver me even when it looks totally impossible. The Lord gets more praise that way. If it was some simple little thing, we could deliver each other. 
But if it's impossible, it's only the Lord. Oh, it talks about the Lord's horses and His chariots of salvation. He's making fun of some other horses and chariots. Okay? The other horses and chariots didn't get through. How many of you have seen... Oh, I don't want to get into this. Have you ever seen the pictures underwater at the Red Sea? Have you, brother? You have, Adam? There's some great underwater photography of the chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. But we don't need it. This is good enough for me. I don't care if there were no pictures at all. I believe every bit of this. And the Lord is making fun of their horses and chariots because His horses and chariots got all the way through. Their wheels didn't fall off. And he, it's, it's a figure. It's a prophetic language. He carried all of His people across. You were there with chariots. What are they called? Chariots of salvation. You know when you're breathing your last and there's a little right under your nose and you're looking over a little green screen? A chariot of salvation is in that room with the horses of God and it's called the chariot of salvation. And if you don't want to be reminded of that when I'm in that bed, I want you to remind me of it. Because I'm going for a ride. I don't know what you call death. All I know is I'm going for a ride. I'm going to be carried into heaven. And I love that spiritual swing low, sweet chariot. The chariot of salvation. It swung low for those Israelites and carried them across the Red Sea. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Thy bow was made quite naked. Bows were carried in scabbards. His bow was pulled out and was naked. There was nothing covering it. He exposed his bow and his mighty arrows according to the oaths of the tribes. What does it say? Even thy word, Selah. God had made a promise. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You are my people. And I will deliver you out of the land of Egypt and place you in the land of Canaan. His oaths to the tribes. His word. Do you trust His Word as much as they should have? Do you trust His Word? He has said He will never leave you nor forsake you. He said he has said that though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you should fear no evil because He is with you. Do you believe all that? The, the prophet is trying to stir you up to believe all that. To fear nothing. David could say, see David knew Habakkuk 3. Though a host should encamp against me, I will not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. Where did he get that confidence? Those little words in verse 9, even thy word, God's promises to him. Do you know what we have each other for? That when we're in trouble, we are able to dig out God's word out of his word to give to one another that we will rest our hope in His Word and His oaths which He has made for us. And do you know what kind of an oath He's made that we will be in heaven someday? He has sworn by Himself. He could swear by no greater because there is no greater thing on earth or in the universe than Himself. So He swear by Himself that surely blessing, I will bless thee. We shall be in heaven. Not one will be lost. Selah. I like that one. It's appropriate right there. The word of the Lord was fulfilled when God made naked His bow and placed His arrow on the string and shot the heathen and destroyed the enemies of Israel. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers, rocks, mountains. Moses, stand on Mount Horeb and strike it. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers and outflowed a gushing river out of a place where there had been no hole. A blessing. It's one thing to save your people from an army, but then if you don't feed them and give them drink, they're going to die anyway. So the Lord takes care of everything you're ever going to need. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. 
The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. This is another reference to the Red Sea and the Jordan. Those were great events in the history of Israel. The repetition is for the emphasis. The waters passed by. They did not stand in their way. They did not wash them away. They got out of the way. They passed by. The mountains saw thee and trembled. If those mountains are literal, like Mount Sinai, it trembled in the presence of the God of Jacob. If those mountains are prophetic mountains of the political states of Canaan and of the wilderness, they trembled. It doesn't matter which way you take it. It's God shaking the heavens and the earth, literally and poetically. Both occurred. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. When you lift up your hands to salute or to say, I will do that, the the Red Sea lifted up his hands, stood up on both sides, and said to God, I'll let these people pass through because the waters were obeying his voice. It's a song. Listen, you know how songs are written, don't you? Which one do you want me to pick on? Close to you? Carpenters? 1970? On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a song or star and all that other garbage in that little song? The reason I'm going through that is to remind you that a song is not to be understood in absolute literal application in every phrase, but for you to get the word picture of God's great and glorious deliverance. I hope you understand that. You should understand that. I hope that you benefited from the reading of Isaiah 13 this morning by Brother Chris. That chapter is so important for you to understand Bible prophecy. If you read Isaiah 13 and see all the day of the Lord, the earth shall flee away, the sun will stop shining, the constellations will not give their light, all, every, all the wicked are going to be destroyed, on and on, and all it was was media overthrowing Babylon. But that's the kind of language that's used to describe such a great political event. It's a great chapter. Oh, you learn chapters like that, all of a sudden Matthew 24, uh, Acts chapter 2 become very easy to interpret. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. Joshua stood before the people with five kings of Amorites facing him. You read it last night in Joshua chapter 10, if you read that chapter. Joshua stood up before the assembly of God. He stood up in church and said, I have, I'd like to offer a prayer. Sun, stand still. Moon, stay over there in the valley of Agilon. Did it happen? Amen. Praise the God of heaven. It happened. For a whole day, the sun did not go down. That is a real event of history. Do you think you're going to get it in history of civilization at Greenville Tech? No, they're going to cheat you out of real history. Who cares about Columbus discovering America? The Lord had discovered this continent a long time earlier than that. And so had a whole lot of other people. Who cares that it was called the Santa Maria, the Ninto and the Pinto Bean, or whatever came over here? Do you know the the, the stuff that they memorize... What they ought to be memorizing is that Joshua one time had enemies facing them, and he said, son, stand still. Do you know what kind of courage it took? I think he had got up to Moses' level by that time, don't you? He was a, it was an intimidating job to follow Moses. You know, Moses had held out his rod over the Red Sea, and it divided. But Joshua told the son to stand still, and it did. And it's mentioned here because Jews that are going to be hauled back to Babylon, don't worry. The God of Joshua is with you. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Do you remember that battle? There were some arrows and spears in that battle that killed more of the Amorites than the Israelites, or the, 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 the Jews killed. Do you remember what those arrows and spears were? Hailstones, uh, small or large. Large, and it killed more of the Amorites than the Jews killed. There was lightning and it was a terrible storm. Yet the sun was still up. This is the God of heaven destroying five kings of the Amorites. Verse 12, Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. 
you had just read to you. I'm trying to tie these chapters together. Do you know how much Scripture we've crammed into this day? Joshua 11. It said that God hardened their hearts so that they would come against Him in battle. He was so angry against the the nations of Canaan, He did not want them coming and asking for terms of peace. So He hardened their hearts so that they would come and fight so that He could utterly destroy them. Is that Does that sound like someone that's angry? He threshed. You know what threshing is? It's putting grain in the floor and beating it until you separate the husk from the seed inside it. And then you toss it in the air and blow away that chaff. He threshed the heathen in anger. They had been worshiping idols and committing sodomy and bestiality like much of our nation or a good segment of our nation. And he was judging them. He said, if we don't go, if you Israelites don't go and wipe them out, the land itself will spew them out. They were so wicked. He hardened their hearts in battle because he was in anger. So these Jews could, could know, oh, when the Lord is done using Babylon, he is going to thresh them. And so they could take comfort. Verse 13, thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. And who are his anointed? Moses and Joshua. Remember, he said in a psalm that he had ordered the world, touch not mine anointed when they traveled from nation to nation. Are you you all familiar with that psalm? I'm, I'm saving time by trusting that you know your Bibles a little bit. Touch not mine anointed. Those were his leaders. That was Abraham. That was Isaac. That was Jacob. That was Moses. That was Joshua. The ones he had anointed to lead his people. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. God wiped out those nations, those city-states, from top to bottom. It would tell you he got the king. And then did it say something like there was nothing left that breathed? Did he say that? That's the foundation. A king has nothing when he doesn't have people who are working for him to provide for him and make up the kingdom. But the Lord discovered the foundation of every city-state in Canaan and wiped it out from top to bottom. Killed the king? If you were paying attention, you've already had the commentary of God's Word on this chapter from the chapters I had us read today. You already had it. He took the kings out, and He would tell you, He took the king, and He took everything else until they were utterly destroyed. He discovered the whole foundation and wiped them out so they no longer existed. Thou didst strike... Oh, there's a seal there at the end of verse 13. Because He got them all. You know, sometimes when you don't take care of everyone in a nation, you end up bogged down in some military campaign that you can never get out of. Does that sound familiar? Are we in a military campaign that we can't get out? You know, Joshua never had anything like that. You know how long his longest campaign was? Two days. Then he went and got another king. If you had cheated ahead in the book of Joshua and gone to chapter 12, it would list the 31 kings that he wiped out in the land of Canaan. The only days it took him was to march from one city to the next and to take everything they owned and storehouse it for the use of Israel. Why did the sun stand still? Did it stand still for a month, a year, five years? A whole day. So they could get an extra 12 hours of light. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. God turned his enemies against themselves. Watch the language. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They turned on themselves and used their staves, whether it be sword or spear or arrow, one being put for the all armor through the heads of their own villages. You've read that numerous times in the Bible, haven't you? when the Lord would turn them against their brother and they would go on beating each other down and Israel would just stand and watch. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Habakkuk is using the first person singular pronoun about himself, but he's including all of Israel. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. They had these conspiracies that they were going to put an end 
to the Israelites that came out of Egypt, but the Lord struck through them by their own staves through the head of their villages. Even when they were conspiring in secret, they would kill each other without Israel having to do anything. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. Verse 15 can easily be the Red Sea and Jordan River again, or it can be a poetic reference to the difficulties and obstacles and enemies that Israel faced as they came toward Canaan. When you read the book of Psalms and David is describing great difficulties, he says, I am in great waters. They are overflowing me. Thy billows and thy waves have gone over me. It's a poetic way of describing great trouble to have a great flood of waters. But the Lord walked right through the the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. That is the end of his glorious description of what God did for Israel coming out of Egypt. It ran from verse 3 to verse 15. Verse 16, song and prayer are continuing but he's no longer in that glorious review of history of the Israelite nation. He goes back to what the Lord has told him is going to happen to Judah. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. Now, He was not quivering or trembling because of the good things he had just written from 3 through 15. He's quivering and trembling at the voice of God from chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Just like in verse 2 of this chapter, he is going back to gather what's going to happen to Judah. And he is trembling over that. He has humbled himself now entirely before the Lord. And notice what he says. When I heard, my belly trembled. Have you ever had your stomach turn turn with fear? sick in the midst of your bowels, when I heard my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Ever seen a person afraid whose lips were shaking? Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. I love these words, and I want you to love them. That I might rest in the day of trouble. His hope was in the Lord that in the day of trouble, when Nebuchadnezzar came up with his armies to take out Judah, he would find rest in that day. That I might rest in the day of trouble. He saw the terrible judgment coming. He humbled himself before God. He believed every bit of it. He trembled with the full fury that he knew God was going to pour out on Judah. Yet in the midst of that, remember what he had said in chapter 1? We shall not die. We shall not die, that I might rest in the day of trouble. That was his desire and his hope. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. When Nebuchadnezzar comes up to the people of God and invades them with his troops, he was hoping to rest in that day of trouble. And he was doing that by humbling himself before God and admitting that the nation deserved it and submitting himself to it. When troops come up and take a nation, they wipe out the means of production. They have an army to feed. If you've ever read about World War II and the Germans going east to go from Germany to Moscow, Stalingrad, and Leningrad, they consumed the earth to feed their army. On the way back, there wasn't much there because armies do that. Armies eat a lot of food. If you take a couple million men that are 20 years old and make them march and fight, They like to eat. And so a lot is consumed. And so Habakkuk goes right into the 17th verse. Although the tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. That is a day of trouble. That is the day of trouble of verse 16. Six descriptive statements describing total economic and agricultural failure. Yet, 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 I will rejoice in the Lord. This is his profession. This is the end of the book of Habakkuk. 
He's complained about Judah's sins. has said, I'll send Babylon. He's complained about Babylon being the tool of God's chastening. God said, I'll destroy Babylon. He's remembered all that God did for Israel coming out of Egypt. And here, He brings it to a conclusion, which is exactly what we should do when we remember God's works of old, when we meditate on the work of His hands, and when we muse on what He has done. This is how we should end up. This is the product of godly meditation upon the Word of God. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. If He pounds the nation of Judah, and He should, they are wicked. He'll save me in the middle of it. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He would not only bear it, He would rejoice at it. He he had the Lord. The Lord was going to deliver him with His chariots of salvation. The Lord God, Jehovah, is my strength. And He will make my feet like hind's feet. And He will make me to walk upon mine high places. Jehovah God is my salvation. He will deliver me and keep me safe. He will give me the fleet feet of a female deer. That is what a hind is. Try to catch one sometime. I'll put you in the woods with a knife and get you hungry. You'll get hungry quickly. And see if you can catch a female deer. They're light of foot. They would be able to escape anything. They would be light enough to dance. And they would be back on his high places. The high places in any estate or in any nation are the eminent preferred places because they're safe and they're beautiful because of the view. I'll be back on my high places. The Lord will give me the fleet feet of a female deer. The Lord God is my salvation. Jehovah is my salvation. He did it for Moses. He did it for Joshua. He'll do it for me. He'll do it for you. You poor Jews that trust in the Lord in Judah. When Babylon comes, He'll deliver you. I ask you today, are you ready for the fig and the olive and everything else failing? If you put your trust in the Lord, you have everything. You have a portion and a cup that no man with any amount of wealth, like a Bill Gates who knows not the God of the Bible, can ever have. You have it. It's to know this God, and it's to meditate upon Him. If you don't read your Bibles, and if you don't meditate, and if you don't talk about these things, you will be bankrupt of strength. You will be impotent. If you want to be strong, you prepare yourself by delighting in these verses, knowing that the God that did it for them can do it for you. You will face trials. Difficulties will come. But we can rejoice in the face of them if the Lord God is our strength. He will strengthen us in our soul. He will bless us. He will give us the ability to see through it and past it. He will give us the wisdom to overcome it. His chariots of salvation will come to our defense. Selah. The book of Habakkuk. May the Lord be praised. Amen.